Chapter 23 of The Beloved Vagabond by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 23. Joanna married Major Walters as soon as the conventionalities would permit. She wrote then for the first time to Parago. I bear you no malice, my dear Gaston, and I am sure you bear me none. Your breaking off of our engagement was the only way out of a fantastic situation. You might have broken it less abruptly, but you were always sudden. If I may believe, Astico, your own marriage was a lightning incident. I can laugh now, and so I suppose can your wife. But believe me, this sort of thing does leave a woman rather breathless. Wish me happiness, as I wish you. If ever we meet, it will be as loyal friends. Could woman have spoken more sweetly? My dear Joanna, replied Parago, I do wish you all the happiness in the world. You can't fail to have it. You have a real husband, as I have a real wife. Let us thank heaven we have escaped from the moon vapour of the ideal, in which we poor humans are apt to lose our way and stray God knows whither. I am sending you a real marriage gift. My dear Estico, wrote Joanna from an hotel in Florence. What do you think your delightful but absurd master has sent me as a wedding present? It arrived here this morning, to the consternation of the whole hotel. A crate containing six live ducks. The label stated that they were real ducks fed by his own hand. But what am I to do with six live ducks on a wedding journey, my dear Astico? I can't sell them. I hate the idea of eating them. And even if I didn't, Major Walters and I can't eat six. And I can't put blue ribbons round their necks and carry them about with me on my travels as pets. Can't you see me walking over the Ponte Vecchio, followed by them as by a string of poodles? And they are so voracious. The hotel people are already charging them full pension terms. Oh dear, do tell me what I am to do with these dreadful fowl. My dearest lady, I answered, offer the ducks like the dumb flitch of bacon to the most happily married couple in Florence. Whether Joanna acted on my brilliant suggestion, I cannot say. A little while ago I inquired after their ultimate destiny, but Joanna had forgotten. I believe Major Walters and herself fled from them secretly. Arago, on his label, stated that he had fed the ducks with his own hand. This was practically true. Indeed, in the case of those who declined to nourish themselves to the requisite degree of fatness, it was literally true. I have beheld him since perform the astounding operation, a sight dis omnibusque, but not in the Rue des Saladiers. It was on his own farm, the farm near Chartres, which he bought, in his bewildering fashion, as soon as lawyers could prepare the necessary documents. He took train the day after his proposal of marriage to Blanquette, and returned, I remember, somewhat crestfallen, because he could not conclude the purchase then and there. My dear sir, said the lawyer, whom he consulted, you can't buy landed property as you can a pound of sugar over a counter. Why not? asked Padigo. Because, said the lawyer, the law of France mercifully concedes to men of my profession the right of gaining a livelihood. I see that you are a real lawyer, said Padigo, pleased by the irony, and it is an amiable providence that has guided my steps to your cabinet. But Parago was married, and the little apartment in the Rue des Saladiers passed into alien hands, and the newly wedded pair settled down on the farm, 
long before all the legal formalities of purchase were accomplished. It takes my breath away even now to think of the hurry of those days. He decided human destinies in the fraction of a second. My son, said he, when I have paid for this farm, I shall have very little indeed of the capital on the interest of which we have been living. I am now a married man with the responsibilities of a wife and a future family. I have put two hundred pounds to your credit at the Crédit Lyonnais, and that is all your fortune. If art can't support you, when you have spent it, you will have to come to La Haye, the farm, and feed pigs. You'll be richer if you paint them. The piggy they are, and the heavier the gold watch-chains across their bellies, the richer you will be. But you'll be happier if you feed them. Crede expertioro. I went to bed that night, swearing a great oath that I would neither paint pigs nor feed pigs, but that I would prove myself worthy of the generosity of my master and benefactor. I felt then that his goodness was great, but how great it was I only realised in after years when I came to learn his financial position. Bearing in mind the relativity of things, I know that few fathers have sent their sons out into the world with so princely a capital. Fortune smiled on me. Why, I don't know. Perhaps because I was small and sandy-haired and harmless and did not worry her. I sold two or three pictures, I obtained regular employment on an illustrated journal, and raised my price for contributions to Le Fougurier. Bread and butter were assured. There was never a prouder youth than I when, one August morning, I started from Paris for Chartres, with fifty superfluous pounds in my pocket, which I determined to restore to Parago. The old Parago of the high roads, hairy and bronzed, and wearing a great straw hat with wide brim turned down, met me at the little local station. He forgot that he was half British, and almost hugged me. At last I had come. It was my third visit. At last I had torn myself away from that sacre Paris and its flesh-pots and its paint-pots and its artificialities. Nothing is real in Paris, whether it be the smile on the painted lady's lips or the dream of the young poet. Here, in the midst of God's fields, there is no pretending, no shamming, no lying, none of your confounded idealism. All is solid, mon gars, solid like that. And he thumped his chest to illustrate the argument. Roussefal, too? I queried with a laugh, as he fetched up beside the most ancient horse in the department, drooping between the shafts of a springless cart. Needless to say, Boucephal had been rechristened in his extreme old age. He is the living proof, cried Parago, of the solidity rerum agrestium. Look at him. Show me a horse of his age in Paris. The Paris horses, like youth in the poem, grow pale and spectre-thin and die of premature decay. Here, mon petit said he, giving a sou to a blue-bloused urchin, who was restraining the impetuous Boucephal from a wild gallop over the Eure at Loire. When you have spent that, come to La Haye, and I will give you another. I threw my bag into the cart, and we took our places on the plank that served as a seat. En route, Boucephal, cried Parigo, gathering up the reins. Observe the kindly manners of the country. If I had addressed him like your Paris cabin with a ou cocotte, it would have wounded his susceptibilities. Boucephal started off jog-trot down the straight white road edged with poplars, while Parago talked, and the sun blazed down upon us from a cobbled sky. All round, the fertile plain laughed in the sunshine, a giant, contented laugh, like that of its broad-faced, broad-hipped daughters, 
who greeted Parago as we raced by at the rate of five miles an hour. Did I ever meet a Paris horse up at this speed? asked Parago, and I answered him truthfully, never. We stopped in a white-walled, red-roofed village, beside a tiny shop gloriously adorned with a gilt bull's head. The butcher's wife came out. Bonjour, Monsieur Parigo. Bonjour, Madame Jolivet. Have you a nice fatted calf for this young prodigal from Paris? If you haven't, we could do with four kilos of good beef. And the result of ten minutes' talk was a great lump of raw meat, badly wrapped in newspaper, which Parigo, careless of my Paris clothes, thrust on my knees while he continued to drive Boucephal. I dropped the beef into the back of the cart. Parigo shook his head. Tomorrow, my son, you shall be clothed in humility, and shall clean out the cow-pen. I should prefer to accept your original invitation, master, said I, and help with the corn. For Parigo, besides Boucifal and cows and ducks and pigs and fowls and a meadow or two, possessed a patch of cornfield of which he was passionately proud. He had sown it himself that spring, and now was harvest. He pointed to it with his whip as soon as we came in sight of the farm. My corn, my Elastico, it is marvellous, eh? Who says the Bersilius Nibidad Parigo can't make things grow? I was born to it. Nom de Dieu, I can make anything grow. I could plant your palette and it would come up a landscape. And, sacre mille cochon, I've done the most miraculous thing of all. I am the father of a human being, a real live human being, my son. He is small as yet, he added apologetically, but still he is alive. He has teeth, Astico. It is the most remarkable thing in this astonishing universe. The dim form of a woman standing with a child in her arms in front of a group of farm buildings across the fields to the right gradually grew into the familiar figure of my dear Blanquette. She came down the road to meet us, her broad, homely face beaming with gladness, and in her eyes a new light of welcome. Narcisse trotted at her heels. The rheumatism of advancing years gave him a distinguished gait. He sprang from the cart. Beautiful, left to himself, regarded the family meeting with a grandfatherly air, until an earth-coloured nondescript emerged from the ground and led him off towards the house. After our embraces, we followed, Parago dancing the delighted infant, Blanquette with her great motherly arm around my shoulders, and Narcisse soberly sniffing for adventure after the manner of elderly dogs. Do you remember, Astico? said Blanquette. Four of us started for Chambry. Now five of us come to La Haye. C'est drôle, hein? Tu es contente? I asked. Her arm tightened and her eyes grew moist. Mais oui, she said in a low voice. Then she looked at Parago and the child, a yard or two in front of us. He is the image of his father, she said, almost reverentially. I burst out laughing. Where the likeness lay between the chubby, snub-nosed, eighteen-months-old baby and the hairy, battered parago, no human eye but Blanquette's could discover. I vowed he resembled a little Japanese idol. Pauvre chérie, said Blanquette, mother-wise. The house of Parago was not a palace. It stood low and whitewashed amid a medley of little tumble-down erections, and was guarded on one side by cowsheds, on the other by the haystack. You stepped across the threshold into the kitchen. A door on the right gave access to the bedroom. A ladder connected with a hole in the roof enabled you to reach the cockloft 
the guest-room of the establishment. That was all. What on earth could man want more? asked Parago. The old rep suite, the table with the American cloth, the colour prints in gilt frames, including the portrait of Garibaldi, the cheap deal bookcases holding Parago's tattered classics, gave the place an air of familiar homeliness. A mattock, a gun and a cradle warred against old associations. When we entered, the child began to whimper. Perhaps it did not approve of the gun. Like myself, he may, in trembling fancy, have heard its owner cry, I have an inspiration. Let us go out and shoot cows. Parago found another reason. That infant's life is a perpetual rebellion against his name. I chose Triptolame, a beautiful name. If you look at him, you could see it written all over him. Lord Ket was crazy for Thomas. In indignation, I swore he should be christened Triptolame Onesim. Lonquette wept. I yielded. At least let me call him Didim, I pleaded. Didim? There's nothing caressing about Didim. Repeat it. Didim. No, Blanquette wept louder. She wept so loud that all the ducks ran in to see whether I was murdering her. It is not true, protested Blanquette. How can you say those things? You know they are not true. Her state was so terrible, continued my master, that I sacrificed my son's destiny. Behold, Thomas. I too would howl if I had such a name. He is hungry, said Blanquette, and it is a very pretty name. He likes to hear it. N'est-ce pas, mon petit Tom Tom Cherry? There he smiles. She is really convinced that he has heard her call him Thomas. A woman, said Parago. That evening, after we had feasted on cabbage soup and the piece of beef which I had been too stuck up to dandle on my knees, and clear brown cider, the three of us sat outside the house in the warm August moonlight. Sinking into an infinitely far horizon stretched the fruitful plain of France, Cornland and Pastia, and near us the stacked sheaves of Parago's corn stood quiet and pregnant symbols of the good earth's plenty. Here and there dark patches of orchard dreamed in a haze. Through one distant patch a farmhouse struck a muffled note of grey. On the left the ribbon of road glistened white between the sentinel poplars silhouetted against the sky. The hot smell of the earth filled the air like spice. A thousand elfin sounds, the vibration of leaves, the tiny crackling of cornstalks, the fairy whir of ground insects, melted into a companionable stillness. Ronquette half dozed, her head against Padigo's shoulder, as she had done that far-off evening of our return from Chambury. The smoke from his porcelain pipe curled upwards through the still air. I was near enough to him on the other side for him to lay his hand on my arm. My son, he whispered in English, I was right when I said I had come to the end of my journey. Eventually I am right in everything. I prophesied that I would make little Augustus Smith a scholar and a gentleman. Te voila. I knew that my long pilgrimage would ultimately lead me to the inner shrine. Isn't all this, he waved his pipe in a circular gesture, the holy of holies of the real? Is there any illusion in the unutterable poetry of the night? Is there anything false in this promise of the fruitful earth? My God, Astico, I am happy. When the soul laughs, tears come into the eyes. I have all that the heart of man can desire. The love of this dear wife of mine, the child asleep within doors, 
the printed wisdom of the world and a dozen tongues of men caught up haphazard in what i once in a failing hour thought was my wild goose chase after truth the pride in you my little astico the son of my adoption and the most overpowering sleepiness that ever sat upon mortal eyelid he yawned i protested it was barely nine o'clock it is bedtime said parago we have to get up at five good heavens master said i why these unearthly hours he laughed and quitted candide il faut cultiver notre jardin no said the drowsy blanquette at last understanding the conversation we have to cut the rest of the corn it's all the same my dear said parago tenderly we were talking philosophy philosophy merely means the love of wisdom and all that the wisdom of all the ages can tell us is summed up in the last words of one of the wisest books that ever was written we must cultivate our garden but how my dear erratic master has managed for years and years to cultivate the farm of la haye and to bring up my godson in the fear of the lord and the practice of land surveying is a proof that the late mr matthew arnold was hopelessly wrong in his categorical declaration that miracles do not happen. End of chapter 23 End of The Beloved Vagabond by William John Locke